Our first scripture reading comes to us today from 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 25. And you can find this in your pew Bibles on page 961. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority in power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading today comes from Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 8 through 13. And you can find that on page 946. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of God. Mm, Thanks be to God. That's all right. What a privilege to be together today at the end of this Easter vigil. Many of you have been keeping vigil for 40 days and... We are just rejoiced and are excited. Uh, some of you are pretty excited too. You can drink coffee again, and and you can um, you can have sweets again. Um, I pray that it's been a good journey for you. Because I know in my own life that when I lay some things aside, even for a brief time, that that God meets me there and grants me more than I ever laid aside. I pray that that's been true for you as well. But what a joy it was just a few nights ago to be together too and to share in the Passover Seder together, to, um, to go through that amazing foretaste of, 
of the very truths that we're celebrating today together at Passover. Do you remember the children asking these questions? Uh, asking questions. Why do we do what we do? What does this mean? And, and Lord willing to have found somehow in those symbols, the bitter herb, remember that, the parsley, the egg, the shank of lamb, to find in those symbols meaning and power. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just convinced that God often meets us as we, uh, as we look for meaning in symbols, as we look for meaning in scriptures. So I'm so excited to be able to come to you with scripture, the two that you've heard already today. But, but especially the story of the resurrection. Now, I've already shared with you part of it, but let me review with you the story from Matthew's perspective in, in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 15. Now, after the Sabbath, we're told, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was, was like lightning. You can tell that Matthew's just struggling for words here. It was like lightning, and his clothing is white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. Remember this last Easter? Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus. I love those words. Jesus was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. See, I have told you. So they departed and went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. There's a second time he tells us, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this very day. To this very day. May God bless the reading of his holy word to our understanding. Well, just reviewing again what we talked about a year ago when we looked at this passage together. There is an amazing comfort here. An ultimate comfort given to people who are afraid. To people who cannot piece together in their minds the, the reality of what they're seeing with the understanding that they have always depended on. I'm calling it the ultimate comfort that the angel brings, right? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear clouds your vision. Fear paralyzes you. Don't be afraid. Again, we've seen over and over again that 
365 times in Scripture, we're told, when you're not sure what's going on, when you're not aware of what God is up to, don't be afraid. Fear is the opposite of trust and faith. Don't be afraid. The angel celebrates with these women that they are seeking Jesus. And it's a good word to us as well. Seek Jesus. Why? We saw just a few weeks ago that everyone who asks, God responds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Everyone who seeks will find. Seek Jesus. Seek Jesus like Mary and the other Mary at the tomb on Easter morning. Seek Jesus. And then, then we saw last year that he gave us some very simple, simple first steps, some baby steps. Come and see. Come and see. I'm so grateful that today you came and see, and to see. You, you, you might have done it out of an invitation of someone else. You might have done it out of, out of your own curiosity. But you said, I'm going to go again on Easter Sunday and see for myself in, in very real ways. You're doing what Mary and the other Mary did. You are coming and seeing for yourself. But then we saw last, last year as well that he challenged us. Once you have seen for yourself, what are you going to do? The angel challenges us like he challenged Mary that morning. Go and tell. Go and tell someone. Oh, I'm, I, I'm overwhelmed with the words. They said, in fear and yet great joy, the two Marys went and did what the angel told them. They had found, even in the midst of their fear, they had found the ultimate comfort. I rejoice and pray that ultimate comfort may be yours today. But what I'd like to do with you today is, is to press on in our understanding of what was really going on that Easter Sunday morning, to press on and say, what is the ultimate question? It seems like God is presenting before us a powerful question for us. What is that question? It's going to sound like a slam dunk, so please don't dismiss me as soon as I say it, because you're, you're likely to think I already have answered that question in my mind. I don't need to pursue this further, but my, my great, um, my great uh, challenge today is to present that question to you in a way that transforms you today. What is that ultimate question? We've seen the ultimate comfort. The ultimate question is this. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Did Jesus rise from the dead? I want to speak as plainly as I can this morning. We all live in a, in a day and an age when, when faith and religion is looked at as something of a personal preference or, or maybe even worse, an, an opinion. People say things like all religions are fundamentally the same. They're just superficially different, right? So choose what works best for you. Choose what works best for you. And as a result, the question of truth is completely avoided. The question of truth. What is the truth here? If we avoid it, it's a huge mistake because belief is irresponsible and maybe even empty, right? If it's not based on truth. But again, we say all the time, truth is subjective. It's a matter of, of, 
a preference, right? Something may be true for you, but not true for me. We say things like that all the time, but we don't really believe that, do we? Think about it for just a second. Which of you want to go to a bank this week and say, I need to withdraw some money from my account? And to hear the teller say, well, uh, Dave, here's the problem. You don't have any money in your account. And, And imagine if I said back to that teller, I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what your personal preferences are, teller. I know I have money in my account and I want to withdraw it, right? About that time, they press a little button under the counter, right? Well, here's the reality, right? Either you have money in the account or you don't. It doesn't really matter what you feel about it. Even what you believe about it, the issue is truth. Is there money in the account or not? And, and this is good. This is a good thing that the tellers do that, right? The last thing in the world we want banks to do is to give out money based on how the teller feels or believes, right? We want, we want our lives to be based on truth. And I know that that's an extreme, simple example, but there are thousands of other examples like that in the details of our lives. Questions, why, when it comes to the most important questions in life, questions that deal with grand, eternal realities, why would we want to throw truth out the window? So why would we want to throw truth out the window this morning? So that brings me to what I want to ask today, this question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Not talking about resuscitation, right? Not talking about reincarnation. I'm talking about resurrection. Dead and in the grave, only to rise from inside a tomb and walk out. Did Jesus do that? And it's a question of truth, not of preference. Either he did or he didn't, right? It's a question of truth. But the ramifications of this truth are huge. Did you hear them in the First Corinthians passage? If Jesus did not rise from the grave, we are wasting our time this morning. The whole thing is a lie. We are fools playing a religious game. The Bible says in in 1 Corinthians 15, Christians are to be pitied if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Why? Because they base their their, their lives on an untruth. But, if Jesus did rise from the grave, that's got amazing ramifications for all of us. Every single one of us in this room, honestly, every single person on the face of the earth. So did Jesus rise from the grave? I chose this passage from Matthew this morning because those questions were happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Those exact questions were happening on the very day that Jesus rose from the grave. And, and, and the questions are prevalent in our culture today. What are some possible explanations, right? What are possible explanations uh, to explain whether or not he rose from the grave? Many people in our culture and in their culture of that day would say Jesus didn't even die on the cross. Over two billion people 
in the world believe that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. They believe that because they're told that in the Islamic faith. They're told that he just passed out and that he wasn't really uh, dead and that he was put in the tomb uh, alive and then he revived in the tomb and found his way out of there. Now, see again, there's an issue of truth here. Either he died on the cross or he didn't. And despite what Mohammed says, six centuries after it happened, Moses, excuse me, Mohammed wrote those words 600 years after the event, those much closer to the historical event. Christians and non-Christians alike reported that it was indeed Jesus who died on the cross. Now, there have been others who said, yes, it was Jesus who went to the cross, but he didn't die there. He just was hurt really, really bad um, because of the, time, the, fast, the Passover feast that was coming. They took him down before he died. They buried him quickly. Later, he regained consciousness and he escaped from the, truth, uh, from the tomb. Now, now, this explanation assumes that Jesus went through six trials, no sleep, a brutal scourging, thorns thrust in the side of his head, nails thrust into his hands and feet, and after hours on a cross, even had a spear stuck in his side, that he was wrapped in grave clothes, put in a tomb, and a stone rolled over the entrance, guarded by Roman soldiers. So we're to believe that in that situation, Jesus regained consciousness, um, walked out of the tomb, nudged the stone out of the way, went past the guard standing nearby and coolly went on his way. I'm, I'm just going to call um, not plausible on this one. And there were witnesses there. There were witnesses there that saw him die. And even as these words that we read this morning were being written, were still alive. Now, Jesus did die. One of the, one of the most attested to facts in in all of history, was that Jesus did live and that he did die. Well, what else could explain this then? Well, there's possible that, that Jesus' tomb was not empty, right? That he did die, but his tomb was not empty. And there's a pretty amazing theory out there that, that they went to the wrong tomb that morning, right? The theory goes that when the women went to the tomb that Easter morning in their grief and shock over Jesus' death, they mistakenly went to the wrong tomb and thought that he had risen. And everyone started to believe that because they went to the wrong tomb as well. And since that time, everybody's gone to the wrong tomb. If they'd only checked one tomb over, I'm sorry, I'm trying very hard not to get sarcastic in that, but, but there are genuinely people that... that, that that have put their weight down on the wrong tomb theory, despite the fact that the Romans um, validated which tomb it was. Here's the problem. All somebody needed to do was say, he's buried over there, right? You don't think that people looked for his body? After he rose from the grave, all they would have had to do would be to say, he's buried over there. So we're standing on some pretty firm historical ground when we say that not only did Jesus die, the tomb was empty. That leads us to the one, even from our scripture this morning. 
Um, yes, he did die, and the, and the tomb was empty, but it was empty because the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And that's exactly what Matthew tells us was contrived from the very beginning. A conspiracy theory. I love conspiracy theories. We were watching the other night a bunch of conspiracy theories about JFK on Netflix. I love conspiracy theories, especially the good ones, right? Um, there's pretty two, uh, excuse me, there's two pretty strong reasons why this is unlikely, right? First, that would mean, that would mean, remember what it said, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. Two timid and frightened and scared Galilean disciples in Jerusalem that they outmaneuvered a guard of highly disciplined and skilled Roman soldiers in order to do which all the Jewish and Roman authorities were committed to making sure did not happen. There were guards at the tomb because they wanted to make sure that nobody tampered with that tomb of Jesus. Amazing to think that that frightened disciples could overpower Roman soldiers. But second, the whole idea is kind of preposterous to begin with. There were many. Jesus was not the only one who ever claimed to be the Messiah. There were many would-be Messiahs, so to speak, in those days who were executed. That was the way they dealt with would-be Messiahs who were executed, executed. And in no case did any of their followers claim that the leader had risen from the dead. And maybe, just maybe, the reason that this entire religious system was set up against that idea on, on all sides was because of that. In Greco-Roman thought, uh, which there are two major cultures going on, Greco-Roman and Hebrew, in Greco-Roman thought, the goal in life was to be free from the body. That was a good thing. That, that he had died and now his spirit was set free from the body. Why in the world in Greco-Roman thought would anyone want to come back into the body? And some of us are getting old enough now and, uh, that we're starting to say, you know what, I'm kind of looking forward to being freed from some of the challenges of this body. But even in Hebrew thought, in Jewish belief, the idea of individual resurrection back into a world of brokenness and sin and sickness and decay and death. That was inconceivable. We don't want to be resurrected back into this life. We want to be resurrected into the next. It was not an option in Jewish thought. Unless, unless of course, it was true. Now, when we think about these last two options, the empty tomb, the stolen body, both of them are un- undercut by another powerful reality that was also in our Corinthian passage. The, the reality was many people saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. If you have an empty tomb but nobody's seen Jesus, right, then you have something strange going on but not a resurrection. If you have disciples who stole a body and claim that Jesus is alive but nobody actually sees him alive, then you've got disciples fabricating the story, right? But if people actually saw Jesus after he had died on the cross and way over 500 people saw Jesus after he had died on the cross, you've got a real issue. And there's one more possibility I have, to, I have to be real with. That's the possibility that the disciples were delusional. 
They were delusional when they claimed to have seen Jesus. The story goes that in that day they didn't have scientific knowledge as we do in this day and they were prone to believe more in the supernatural. So in their pain, nobody's nobody's dissing them over this, but in their pain and grief over Jesus' death, they lost track of the facts and believed that somehow Jesus was guiding them and leading them. Certainly we know that that's true in our grief sometimes. We want so bad for something to be true. Maybe many there did have visions of, of Jesus speaking to them. Maybe they really believed he was still alive, or maybe they knew he wasn't. But if they believed that he was spiritually alive and not physically, how do you account for over 500 seeing him? How do you account for that? This raises, this raises a an issue of how do we know something is true. This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about how do we really know that JFK was assassinated, right? Well, we know because people are still alive who saw it happen. And the one that really breaks my heart is, is the one about the Holocaust, that, that whole groups of people are claiming that the Holocaust, you remember the, 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 the murdering of six million Jews and five million other people uh, during World War II didn't really happen, right? There are people that are claiming that those things didn't, didn't really happen. Well, well, we are just getting to the edge of that time, but, but we have people alive today that were witnesses of that. When Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, which we read earlier, he, he speaks of those 500. Well, many of them were still alive. Even 30 years later, many of them were still alive. He says, go ask them. Go ask them, did this happen? And they were still alive to be able to say, yes, that really happened. Oh, I can imagine a lot of things in my mind. I can imagine that, that I am... A, a, a great basketball player, right? And, and I, can, I can even envision and dream about that. But, but the reality is, is there are people who alive who know that I'm not, who have witnessed that I am not. Um, truth, truth wins in the end. The disciples were not delusional. There were people that verified what they said. That leaves us one possibility, as I understand it, and that's that Jesus actually did die on the cross and actually rose from the grave. And you say, are you meaning that's a real, literal, physical... This happens all the time, beloved. We, we, we hear something from the Bible, we say, that didn't really happen that way. They're taking poetic license, right? We do this all the time. And I've participated in that during my 40-year journey with Jesus, sometimes when it's hard, when I'm living in tension between something that the Bible says and, and my lack of human experience of the same thing, I've tried, I've tried to resolve it. And, and I've honestly never seen somebody rise from the dead. I've wanted it so many times. I've wanted a loved one or someone I cared about to, to sit up in that coffin and, and be resurrected. But... But the reality is I've never experienced that. So, so we say, that doesn't mean a physical resurrection actually happened. Yes. Yes, something that we have not experienced has actually happened. And it has radically changed the course of history, right? 
It's radically changed the course of history. Begin with the disciples. Their lives were dramatically changed by the resurrection of Jesus. They went from these timid, hiding people to these bold people who were willing to lay down their lives for a truth that other people struggled to grasp. Their, their lives were changed themselves, even to the point where the hardest advocates against it in the second and third generations, people like the Apostle Paul and Jesus' brother James, uh, the hardest advocates against what Jesus, uh, against Jesus rising from the dead, became firm believers in it and died professing the truth of the resurrection. Wow. Wow. What if it is really true? What if it's really true that Jesus rose from the grave? Even if you can't go there, borrow for just a minute with me what the implications of that mean might mean, the startling implications. If Jesus rose from the dead, we have to accept everything he said. See, he, he foretold that, that he would be beaten and killed, and on the third day, rise from the dead. And when that came true, that validated everything else. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he has absolute authority. He has absolute authority. We're going to unpack this next week, because that's a big word in, in the, the, the passage immediately following our passage this morning. His absolute authority. Over what? Well, first, over life and death, right? Listen to Jesus' words before he died. No one, he said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. That stops all the blame shifting, by the way. It wasn't the Jews, despite horrendous things that have been done to the Jews because we thought that they had crucified Jesus. It was not the Romans. It wasn't even our sin, though popular songs like to say it was our sin that caused his death. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And listen to this. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Who determines when women or men take their final breath, right? Who determines the length of our days? Who, who of us makes the decision, I think I'm going to lay my life down today, or before we were born, think, I think I'll be born today, right? Who has that power and control? None of us. But Jesus says he does. If Jesus rose from the dead, he has absolute authority over life and death. But he has authority over so much more. He has authority over sin and even the evil ones. Sin and, and Satan, right? We're told in a very close passage to the one we read earlier from Romans 10, we're told in Romans 3, 23, uh, that the wages of sin is death. Excuse me, 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus' name. What is he saying? What is Paul saying? He says there's a consequence for 
sin and it's death. Death is the payment for sin. This is hard. This is hard for us to grasp. We die. This is going to get harder too. We die because we sin, according to the scripture. We die because we sin. Because we've turned from God to ourselves. Because we've denounced the authority of God over our lives. Every one of us has turned to our own ways. Our own ways of thinking, our own ways of living. And the consequence of all this is death. So, from Genesis 3 on, everyone has died because everyone has sinned. You will die because you have sinned. But there's one person in all of human history who never sinned. There's one person who did not sin. Well, why why then, and everyone understands who I'm talking about, why did Jesus die then? Oh my goodness. That's the blessing of Easter. He died because he loves you. And he didn't want you to die. How many of us have heard or even experienced someone else sacrificing themselves. Someone in a platoon where, where someone falls on the grenade, right, and saves the rest of his platoon. How many of us have heard of stories? Why do they do that? Because they loved the other people, right? They, they chose to sacrifice their own life for someone else. But if they have sinned themselves, what sacrifice is that? The one who never sinned said, I will take your place. I will take your death upon myself. He paid the price for our sin. And so rising from the grave, it's not just a victory for Jesus. It's a victory over death itself. It's a victory over sin as well. Right? It's our victory as well. Right after the Bible says that All these people saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. We read these words, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death, there it is, is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus has absolute authority over even sin, disease, and death, even over the evil one, Satan. And if he rose from the dead, then he has authority over those things. Which brings me to to us. If he has authority over sin, disease, and death, then he has authority over you and me, too. Over you and me. Did you hear those words? From Romans chapter 10. I'll jump in the middle. There's no distinction between Jews or Greeks. There's no racial distinction. The same author would say in Galatians 3.24, there's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between slave and free. All these distinctions that we make don't matter to Jesus. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. All who call on him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? This one's not in your notes, but it means, write this in, he reigns over us. 
reigns, present tense. He reigns over us supremely. Jesus is the sovereign ruler over our lives. He not only was there at the beginning, he not only knew us in our mother's womb, he not only laid down his life for us, but moment by moment and day by day, he reigns over us. I know I've said it myself. I hear it all the time. People come up and enjoy, say to me, I've decided to make Jesus Lord of my life. And I know what they mean. I rejoice in that. But you know what? Um, You didn't make Jesus Lord over your life. He is Lord over your life. You have no choice in the matter. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow, right? Every tongue. One day that lordship is going to be made real. The question is, when will it happen for you? Will it happen for you when it's too late or will it happen now? In the midst of your strength, in the midst of your pride, would you humble yourself now to say, I know that I'm not in control. I know that you are Jesus I submit to you now as Lord. Jesus reigns over us supremely. And ultimately, it's it's amazing, but we're told in the Bible that he will be the one that judges us eternally. You see, I said that, that death is the result of sin, but I was talking about physical death. The Bible is very clear that our souls live forever. They will live Forever. The question is not, will they live forever, but, but where will they live forever? Jesus says in John 5, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. And moreover, the Father, God the Father, judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Wow. Jesus not only reigns over us, but one day will judge us, will evaluate our lives. I'm getting a little nervous. Wow, and I honestly see people who are frightened of that possible reality. And that would be true, and that would be worthy of being frightened over if this last part were not true as well. That he loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. You remember the reason that he died in the first place. The reason we're even having this discussion about resurrection is because God loves you enough to send his son to pay the price for your sin in your place. And we know that it's not just some made-up story, some, some fanciful myth, precisely because of the resurrection, the historical resurrection of Jesus. We were lamenting this morning in our, in our um, small group uh, all the pleasant fictions that accompany life. I love that pleasant fiction word. Isn't that a nice way of describing all the falsehoods that we, um, we know are not true, but we continue to practice just because they're so pleasant. I'm not going to name any of them today in case there's small children in the room, but you can figure a few of them out, right? Right? You can figure a few of them out. And, and they're pleasant. They're beautiful. But they're not true. The historical reality of Easter is not the bunnies. The historical reaction, uh, reality of Easter is that Christ rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. And that validates that he reigns supremely. It it validates that he will judge us eternally. It validates that he loves us deeply. 
so deeply. One of my favorite authors, I quote him all the time, I apologize, but is Tim Keller. And, and Tim says this, I always say to my secular friends in New York that if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should at least want it to be true, right? Most of them care very deeply about justice for the poor, about alleviating hunger and disease, about caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will simply burn up. They find it discouraging, Tim Keller writes, that so few people care about justice without realizing that it's their own worldview that undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if at the end it will not make any difference? However, Tim continues, if the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's more infinite hope. There's more reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. It's because of the resurrection that we care about justice. It's because of the resurrection that we care about loving the unlovely. It's because of the resurrection that we sacrifice ourselves for other people. Don't don't you have some innate, built-in longing and desire for meaning and purpose yourself? Don't you have this hunger within you for hope that says this cannot be all that is, right? This world cannot be all that there is. Don't you have this longing that cancer would not be the final word? Don't you have this longing that tornadoes don't have the last words, that school shootings and wars don't have the last words? Don't you have this longing that starvation and poverty and disease don't have the last words? Jesus' resurrection screams into our longing. Jesus has the last word. And that means he's going to have the last word in each of our lives as well. So let me just end on a very personal question. A couple of them, actually. Do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus? Do you remember what what Paul said in that Romans 10 passage? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is that simple. And I know we've tried to complicate it because we don't like simple things. We want to make it something that we can earn, something that we can work for, right? But it is that simple. Do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? I used to believe all this stuff before. Several people have said to me, I was thinking of one person in particular, but several people have said to me, But I don't think I do anymore. And so I ask you in that situation, so you've come to the conclusion that Jesus did not rise from the dead? No, 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 Dave, I'm not saying that, not necessarily. Well, the question I would encourage you to dive into and to resolve in your mind, in your heart, before you decide where you're going to stake your life for, for eternity, is this question, do you believe that or not? Because if you do, then, then you have this opportunity to divert yourself from a very dangerous direction. So what explanation is most plausible? What, what, 
What answer from above is most plausible for you? Do you believe in the historical resurrection? And if you do, follow me for just a second here. I want you to notice that Romans 10 says that's not all that you need to do. You see, probably uh, 90% of people here in the room believe in the historical resurrection. Now, this pains me to say, but I believe it's from the Lord, but 90% of us aren't going to spend eternity with Jesus. Did he just say what I think he just said? Yes, he did. If you're like everyone else in Evansville, 90% of you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus. But 90% of us are not going to spend eternity with Jesus. Are you trying to contradict the Word of God? Do you know? I'm saying you only believe half of Romans 10, 9, right? The question of do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus is critical. Is critical. I'm not making light of that at all. It's a critical question. But the reality is is that even Satan believes in the historical resurrection of Jesus. Are you nuts, Pastor Dave? If we were to ask Satan this morning, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? What do you think he would say? Yes, he would. If we were to ask him, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what would he say? If I were to ask him, do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again, what would Satan say? He'd say yes. If I were to say to him, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, what do you think he would say? Yes. Yes. If I were to ask him, will you commit yourself to living a good moral life and even get involved in leadership in your church? If I were to ask him if he would do that, he would probably say, yes. Because you can believe and do every single one of those things and not spend eternity with Jesus. I better bail myself out fast because I just made a bunch of people really mad. Satan and his demons believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus and yet are not going to spend eternity with him. But the key question, the question that would change everything in the conversation is if I were to say to the Satan, do you repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord? Now, what would Satan say, right? No. No. Do you repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus the Lord? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, especially in in the Western world and maybe even especially in North America, there are myriad souls who are believe half of Romans 10.9. They might even believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus. But they've not surrendered their life to the authority of Jesus. And so my last question for you is, do you surrender yourself to the universal authority? But you don't understand, Pastor Dave, I don't understand everything. I don't either. Are you kidding me? Every time I open God's Word, I sometimes come away with more questions than I started when I got into it. But I've come to trust. I've come to trust in His Word as the supreme authority over my life and in the living Word, Jesus Christ, as the sovereign authority over my life. And I just want to invite you this Easter. What better time? What better time to 
surrender to Jesus' authority than on Easter Sunday. Not because of anything that I've said. I've just probably muddied it up more than anything else. But because of who Jesus is. He is sovereign Lord. Because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what you've done or I've done, but because what He has done for you. Believe in Him. Surrender to Him. Be saved, beloved, by His mercy toward you and in light of His loving authority over you. See, if that's true, then it doesn't matter if you're lying in a hospital bed as several of our beloved are this morning. It doesn't matter that the prognosis is not good as several people we know and care about have received. What matters on that day, what matters ultimately is not whether you go to church or whether you made a good decision to be a good moral woman or man. What matters on that day is whether you've trusted, entrusted to your Savior, your life. The one who has authority over life and death, sin and Satan, you and me. If you did, if you had, then you don't have to worry about diabetes. You don't have to worry about breast cancer or neuropathy or degenerative eye disease or heart attack or kidney failure or bleeding on your brain. You don't have to worry that your body can take it no longer. Because when you breathe your last breath, when your heart stops beating, you have the victory. I can't do the Latin like you always do, Bill. Christus victor, right? You have the victory in Jesus Christ. He has conquered death. And in him and through him, you will live forever. That, that, beloved, is the great news of Easter. Come on up, worship team, would you? As we close our service today, I just want to invite you again. I, I know um, I've been harsh today, um, but I do it because I love you. I do it because I look at my own life and I see all the pleasant fictions that I am living and I've been convicted by God's word that there is only one source of life. There is only one source of truth. There is only one source of resurrection. And that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus? It's important. But do you also surrender your life to his lordship? As we close in worship, I invite you to ask, just let the Holy Spirit just search your heart. God, what do I believe? And, and if you find yourself coming up short, this is the time. This is the day of salvation. This is the time of mercy and forgiveness. One day it will be a day of judgment. This is not that day. This is the day of life and mercy and resurrection. Talk. Talk to Jesus about it.